0: Hi, Tom. There was a massive amount of news that people might have missed this season. We had some corruption charges or investigations going on with previous Benfica president and some of the other people who uh, were up the top there of the Eagles structure. We had that situation with Porto and Pinto da Costa and his son uh, accused of uh, diverting agents' fees and, and things like that. As I say, these sort of investigations just tend to go on forever. And the uh, judicial system is just so slow that it's very difficult to follow these sorts of stories. And, of course, you know, what journalist is going to want to take on these sorts of stories, knowing what's going to to come your way from the clubs involved and the backlash you're going to get and who's going to want to speak to you about these sorts of issues. So it's kind of difficult to tackle these sorts of stories, but there are a couple that kind of came up. There was another interesting one I, I saw. Which was to do with the television rights, Tom, and I thought this was interesting that there was a story back in March where um, a man by the name of Camilo Lorenzo, who was an economist, he was speaking to a program called Bola Branca. I don't know, I don't know if you know that show, Tom. It's apparently a radio yeah. show, yeah. and he was talking about the uh, the proposed. I mean, it was Salvador was talking about it, and there was different proposals to do with the distribution, I guess, with the money from the television rights. At the time, he said. This is, quote, clubs like Sporting, Porto, and Benfica, but above all, Benfica, do not see this centralization with good eyes. Now, for the smaller clubs, it comes in very handy, but he said it would be a disaster for Benfica. I'm not even going to go anywhere further with that. I just think it's interesting that you would have an economist coming on talking about television rights saying that it's going to be a disaster for what is arguably the most wealthy club in the country and that just basically goes to a whole lot of um, different stories that go on in the media and how i just don't trust any of it i don't i don't trust anything that goes on in in the media when it when it goes on talking about portuguese football tom and what's interesting about this is that pedro Proença, he's the president of the portuguese professional football league i don't know if you saw this time but he he just got re-elected without opposition just like Infantino, just no opposition, no other candidates. And he's the first president in history to be elected for three consecutive terms. Now, I've talked about my previous rant was going on about the bullshit kickoff times. And I'm not sure, I haven't followed up on the, on the, exactly what's going to happen with the television rights and how the money is going to get distributed. I mean, he had some good things to say about the way it would be distributed. And he, and he highlighted some of the inequality in that. And that goes back to the, the those quotes I just mentioned from The Economist talking about woe for Benfica if that was to happen. And just to wrap this up, when Proenza got his third term in charge, he called it a new era in professional football in Portugal. And to quote him, he said, it happens for the first time in the history of Portuguese professional football, that's regarding him getting third term. It is something that I do not hide, fills me with pride, but with enormous responsibility, with no room for vanity or arrogance. So... I think that's interesting. I'm not, I'm not sure, again, what's going to happen with the, with the money, but after talking to so many people in some of the smaller clubs, you can understand what they would think about distribution of money. And this happens in... This is not just a Portuguese thing. Um, this is just all over the place. But have you got anything to say on, on that sort of thing? And anything any thoughts on Proença? And if that's a good thing that he gets elected unopposed for a third term in charge?
1: Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it, The, the this question of the, the rights TV rights. I mean, it's it's just indicative of Portuguese football. Really, it's, uh, we we know it's completely dominated by the big three. You know, not even Braga. You know, they, although they've done well on the pitch recently in terms of kind of the size of the club and the prestige and the fan base and the history, it's really a free team league. You could argue, you know, all these clubs have a good tradition in Europe and they do quite well in Europe. European football Uh, but you know what's better for Portuguese football surely it would be better if you know it was more leveled up you know or at least the smaller clubs were given a little bit more of a chance and having more equitable distribution of TV money would be a step in that direction but of course these three clubs as well as being you know the biggest and the most important they basically run the league (laughs) they basically run it and so you know it's so difficult for anything to change, because if they agree to equal TV rights distributed around all the 18 clubs of the Primera Liga, that means they get less money, obviously, you know, to how the system works at the moment. And I suppose from their point of view, they would just argue, well, you know, everyone wants to watch Enfico and Porto and Sporting. And, you know, they're not really interested in Casa Pia against Gilles Vicente, which, you know, to be brutally honest, is probably true <laughs> in, a, in a you know in a, in a lot of cases, but uh, you know for a long more for a more long term view, you've got to kind of try to change that mentality. I don't know if it ever will. It's it's really difficult to to, to change that. You know I think maybe a more realistic uh, avenue to to change in Portuguese football is the clubs who are kind of. And say just below that bracket of the big three, you know, your Braga, your Victoria, uh, Gimarens, uh Boavista, if, if those clubs can really start improving, then I think that might, you know, that might lead to some changes. They also have some say, I, I think I mentioned this before, didn't I, to you, Matt, uh, when during the COVID crisis and the, the COVID interruption to football, uh, they had this Big meeting. I remember of uh, after a few months. Okay, you know what we're going to do? How long is it going to be shut down? When are we going to start it up again? Are we going to write off this season? And they said, okay, uh, let's have this big meeting. And it was the photo was Pedro Proenza going into the you know the the, uh, the Liga Profesional de Portugal, the, the headquarters, and uh, there was four people around him. And it was the Benfica president, the sporting president and the the Porto president and perhaps the Braga president. I can't remember. And so they were going to decide, you know, what to do with Portuguese football. And it was basically they were deciding, you know, the other clubs were just kind of afterthought. So, yeah, that's definitely one of the worst things about Portuguese football. And it's difficult to know how to kind of, you know, break that uh, kind of Cartel, you have to call it.
0: Yeah, and I think yeah, people can make up their own minds about what's what's going on. And as again, this is not a situation that's specific to Portugal. (laughs) By no, by no means. I mean, this is almost every major league in Europe. It's just an unfortunate part of the situation. I just want to delve into media manipulation. A couple of situations that were really similar. And the first one was, I remember that game when I was in Vizela, where, if you remember, Roger Schmidt got sent off. Some of these stadiums, they're all quite different, but Vizela and Rio Ave are, are very similar in the way that they're structured, in the way that you have some really full-on supporters of the home team right behind the opposition dugout and really close to where the, uh, the players and the officials have to leave the pitch and also really close to where the presidents sit. I think someone threw something at, at Schmidt. They won that game 2-1. There were some dubious calls against Vazela in that game. But the point of this story is that after he got sent off, I and mean, there was some, obviously it goes to the disciplinary board and there's a little bit of an investigation. The club cancelled the, the, the press conference for the, the, the next game against Femalekal. Um, which was apparently un- unprecedented. I mean, it's I guess it's kind of normal after a game when you're, you're pissed off and things haven't gone your way that you would just say, well, I'm not going to the press conference because you don't have to. And I'll get onto that in a second. But to not go to a press conference um, is, is interesting. And then obviously this this happened for Porto. If you remember that game, Tom, against Gilles Vicente, I remember I was there. Um, and we had, was it, Joao Mario? He got sent off. He, I think he fell down and his hand sort of handled hand the ball. And this was just after that uh, Benfica game in Vizela. So what you had here was, um, obviously, Porto were extremely angry. Pretty sure there was another red card in that game that was justified. Uh, was it Uribe or something? But what happened after that defeat to Gil Vicente, of course, you had uh, Pinto da Costa. And Porto had their like their daily newsletter, I don't know if that's online or something, where they, they just talk about the club and that. And this went on for quite some time, where uh, Pinto da Costa said that, you know, there's basically two different ways of using VAR. You know, they, they didn't use it. Um, against Benfica in Vizela to look at some of the decisions where it could have been a penalty and uh, maybe a card or something. Uh, but, uh, but they used it against Porto in that game against Vicente So they're saying, I mean, Pinto de Costa said, just get rid of VAR. If you're not going to be consistent with it, just get rid of it. And then, of course, Conceição wasn't happy. And this went on and on. But it, you know, it got to a point where Conceição just, um, again, there was disciplinary investigations and figuring out how they're going to find them, if they're going to ban them. He just boycotted the press conferences after that for a few games against Sharks. He also did it, I think, against uh, Estudiantes. It might have been three games where he didn't do a pre-match press conference and he didn't go to the post-match pre- press conference. Which, as I people may not know, that you don't have to. You just—it's not part of the obligation. The only obligation is to do the flash interview after the match, which is you know done just off the pitch. That's kind of an obligation. So he, he did that. But then didn't go to the press conference. There was also a situation where I think the the players got or the, the, the club got fined because the players didn't didn't talk to the media after one of the games or something. I think that was in charge. But anyway, the point of this is, Tom, if the press conference is not compulsory, no one has to do it, then why do it at all? It became pretty clear to me seeing what's going on in press conferences and that. And quite often Constance Sall would go to a press conference and just take one question, escalate his sort of tone of voice, and just did then just walk out. I remember Conte did the same thing when Tottenham came against Sporting. So I guess to sort of make a point of this, you have to ask yourself, what is the point of press conferences other than managers and clubs just manipulating the media? I mean, why else would... Why, they've already shown themselves to, to just not do it when there might be difficult questions or something they don't want to talk about or, or in Porto's case, they're trying to make a bigger point to the league or to the Referees Association or something like that. But I think what I took away from everything I just said and what happened with these two clubs refusing to go to press conferences is just that most of it is only for one purpose and that is manipulating not only the media but their own supporters and just controlling the narrative. That's what it's all about Tom, it's controlling the narrative. And of course, these alluding to conspiracies and alluding to corruption. We saw it with Jose Mourinho in that Europa League final. I can't really come to a way to wrap it up. But what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I agree with you. You know, that's what the clubs have come to use these press conferences for. I suppose originally the purpose of the press conference was simply to try and give fans, you know, journalists, fans a better understanding of, you know, what had happened on the pitch. Why? Why? coaches had made certain decisions, tactical decisions, substitutions, you know, maybe opinions about certain incidents which happened in the match, you know, just to try and, I suppose, increase the understanding and, uh, you know, about the, what happened in the match. And like you said, that has shifted not only in Portugal, I think, but especially I'd say it's more pronounced in Portugal. It's it's absolutely what you just said there, you know, is just controlling the narrative. It's the club knows it's a good opportunity to get their message across because, you know, most people watch the games uh, sometimes. The, you know, the or I'd say possibly in the majority of cases here in Portugal, what happens at the press conference uh, or what the managers say at the press conference, gets as much publicity and as much airtime as actually, you know, what happened on the actual pitch, what happened in the game. And and even not, you know, even not going to the press conference and, you know, doing a blackout or a ban or just refusing to go, whatever you want to call it, that also is sending out a message, isn't it? You know, we think it's unfair, we're being treated unfair, you know, we think it's corrupt or something, it's not a level playing field, whatever. So yeah, it's a. I suppose it's. I suppose it's how you, it's the way you want to look at it. It's. A, you could say that's a missed opportunity for you know trying to say something positive about the game, trying to increase people's understanding of the game, or you could just say, well, you know, that's that's part of the. That's one of the tactics uh, you know the clubs use to try and make sure they end up the season. Coming out on top, you know, even if it's, uh, you know, a case of basically trying to put pressure on the authorities and trying to put pressure on the referees, you know, claiming they've been, uh, you know, they've been prejudiced in previous matches, and so perhaps that will, you know, make a referee think twice when a when there's a con- controversial decision in the next match, because that's basically what, what they're all trying to do. They're trying to get. Every, or you know the big clubs especially they're trying to get every single little advantage they can uh for their for the rest of the season and that's one way and i suppose that's what they view these press conferences as for and another chance to get a slight advantage
0: yeah i think it's interesting you brought up some of that pandemic cycles so, because i think it was you know clubs realized during the pandemic that you don't need journalists <laughs> you've got your own website uh porto i just mentioned they got their newsletter um they've got their twitter they got all their social media stuff um they can do their own in-house interviews they can do their own journalism type stuff you know they can give their, their supporters what they want to hear i think you and i and most people can see through most of this stuff pretty easy but yeah obviously when you interact with people online and that you, when you see just how oblivious they are to to just what's so obvious and how they buy into this this uh, these conspiracy theories and whatever it is and uh, most of the time it's just just referees are just bad I just thought I'd bring it up because you know as I said I just really wanted to use this season to just go to as many games as possible and just get as far inside the machine as I could get to see just exactly what goes on in Portugal inside these clubs inside these situations And so I guess we need to finish this little section off with uh, this, this thing that happened with Benfica. Now, I'm going to have to be obviously careful the way I talk about this. This happened quite a long time ago. But, you know, if we're going to be fair income and, and have this rapport with our listeners that we, we tell it as it is, then we, we have to go here. But as I say, I need to be, be a bit careful. But to set the stage, obviously, Roger Schmidt comes in as the new Benfica manager. That's great for me because I have no language limitations there. Asking questions in English, no drama. And so I went to the game in the first one, was it in in Torino, I think, the, the, or the first away game in the Champions League. Um, and I asked him a question there. Um, and then I went to Paris, asked him a question there. And then the first one I tried to ask him another question was, I think, in Partial to Freda. I think they won 2 0 or something. And uh, I sat right up the front. Now, if people might not realize that the way it works in press conferences. You have the manager sitting there and you have the press officer and you put your hand up and then you wait for the press officer to say, okay, you can ask a question. And most of the time, the press officers, obviously, they, they know who the journalists are and they'll sort of go about their business and, and that. But I was thinking that, you know, I already asked a question in, in, in Paris and, and, and to Reno and I thought my questions were, were okay. There's a guy that goes to my gym who's a big Benfica supporter and, and he, he pulled me up and he said, oh, I said, I heard your question, you know, because he listens to the press conference and really enjoyed your question. something okay. My questions must have been okay. He enjoyed it. I'm sure other people did too. So, you know, I'm thinking sweet. Anyway, Pastor Freda, press officer, says no. No question for you. I'm like, okay. I guess you're in a hurry or something. No worries. And then there was another game down. Was it the Balbista game down at the Luge? And he, the press officer, whose name is Ricardo Lemos, he looks at me and he, he's sort of saying, his facial expression is like, who are you sort of thing. I'm thinking, well... You know, I asked the question in Paris, and, and surely you know who I am. Not that, obviously, I'm nothing special in, in the Portuguese journal as well, but I thought that was a bit a bit strange. And then so um, I asked uh, the the woman there who runs the press conference, could I have these emails? I was just, just wanted to get in touch with him to sort of say, ask, you know, what's happening? Um, so then, you know, I sent the email. You looked at the email, Tom. It was just a, an email just to sort of introduce myself and just sort of say, my experience in that, and I'm not looking for controversy. I really wanted to ask him about Frederick Alsness and what was going on there, and some other players, and I thought it was interesting, and then, so then we, so it happened again, it happened in, I think it was, uh, Jules Vicente or something like that, again, I know it was Vizella, it was Vizella, where again, I put my hand up, and he just looks at me, no, no question for you, so that was the third time it happened. And then it happens a fourth time, which was... That was a Champions League game at the Luge before the Milan game, I think. I don't remember. So again, fourth time, I try and get a question in. He just, just looks at me, shakes his head. No. So then I just got up and I went to I went to ask him. I, went, I just wanted to talk to him. So Robert Schmidt, he just kept walking down the tunnel. And uh, so I was having a chat with uh, Ricardo. And I just, just said to him, hey, like, what's happening? Like, why won't you let me ask a question? And he wasn't happy with that. He wasn't too happy that I approached him in that way. He, he viewed it as a confrontation. I viewed it as just a, a conversation and a question. I would have handled it a different way, but I was I was very conscious of the fact that it, it might affect you. And I know that you've been to the Lourdes, I don't know how many times, 100, 200, Tom. And I didn't want to... Obviously, I'm there as a representative of Portugal, a journalist of Portugal, and, and I have to respect that situation. So I had to uh, restrict what I would have normally done if it was just me um, and then he threatened to uh, to ban me from the luge and I said okay that's fine but I told the woman later who asked me about I said look you can ban me if you want it. I don't really care but you can't ban Tom you know like this has nothing to do with him I just wanted to ask a question and that was pretty much it i'm not going to go into really any more detail about that that's just the basic facts of what happened and they did let me in to be fair uh, to, uh, not to the press conference but i did go to the inter milan game and and i think another game against porto yeah so to be fair they didn't completely ban me but this goes back to what we said before i'm trying to figure out like why why wouldn't you let me ask roger schmidt a question i've already proved that i'm not asking bullshit questions i'm not going in for controversy i'm not going in for some you know some bullshit soundbite or for some headline I'm just interested in players and stuff. <laughs> so that just based so I'm trying to think why, why would, why would this happen? And of course, all I could think of is that, um, you know, I tend to ask my questions later in the press conference because I let everyone sort of get their other stuff out of the way. And all I could think of is that Benfica are just really conscious of the fact that they want to control the narrative, and they're not really, they don't really know me that well, and they don't really know what I'm going to ask. But they won't take a risk. They won't. Um, They won't take a chance that I might ask something that uh, upsets the the narrative, especially the end of the press conference. I've already mentioned in previous podcasts how obsessed clubs are with controlling the start of the press conference and how they plant employees in there to pose as journalists uh, who are fed questions as the very first one so that the manager can give a really long answer to set the tone. But it's also obvious from this experience to me that clubs are also really conscious of the, the end of the press conference. You know, they don't want it to end on a, on something that could be controversial or, um, you know, something that might um, you know, tarnish their, I guess, uh, the narrative they want to send out. So that's pretty much a story. And um, as I say, that's uh, I have to tiptoe around it a bit. I'm not going to get into any drama. I, I respect Ricardo Lemos. I respect uh, he, he him getting to that position i'm pretty sure that's all i want to say about it so i just thought it was important we we tell the listeners about that time and tell the listeners that that happened and um i guess now you can you can respond
1: no i think you you know as a fair description of exactly of what happened i think it's just this question of control you know that uh <laughs> the clubs especially the big clubs you know they're really quite obsessed with controlling everything you know around how their club is portrayed and mm-hmm. you know I suppose they would say, perhaps protecting the the manager and uh, the players from any questions which they think could cause some embarrassment, which is, you know, from our point of view, is just, uh, in this case, in this particular case, is just ridiculous because, like he said, you know, uh, all our questions, we, uh, you know, you can also understand a little bit if you listen to the kind of questions which are asked, why clubs are so uh kind of protective uh, about what you know about trying to control the press conference because basically you know i don't like to criticize fellow journalists portuguese journalists because like i said before there's lots of absolutely super journalists much better journalists than i could ever hope to be really interesting questions they asked but there is a significant proportion, I'd say at least 25% of all questions at press conferences are just so obviously fishing for controversy. You know, they want controversy. They, you know, referees are asked, um, sorry, referees, the managers are asked routinely about, you know, referees' decisions, uh, you know, quite often the the coach Gives a gives a response and then it'd be asked again by another coach you know they're just desperate to find that little bit of uh, you know controversy or that you know that that sharp criticism from a coach against a referee or say, saying something like you know this is just the story of our season you know I remember actually uh, Roger Smith saying once he's uh, quite interesting, being asked about a refereeing decision, obviously after one of the Benfica games towards the end of the season. Uh, and he just said, look, if you're asking a question about refereeing after this game, I think it was after they'd beaten Gimmerange 3-1 or something, and he said, if you if you're asking a, you know, a question about refereeing after this game, you don't like football, which I thought was actually a really good response. So, I suppose just from the, I'm just, you know, I'm not justifying it, and I obviously think that's, you know, uh, very poor behaviour, the way that you were treated in that press conference, and by extension, the way that Portugal was treated, you know, in that press conference, but I'm just trying to, you know, think of why, why the clubs do this, and I think that's, that's just it, you know, it's just a question of control, they're really, uh, you know, really conscious of, trying to make sure that they have full control of the press conference. And I suppose asking, uh, letting uh, journalist ask uh, a question who they're not too sure about, you know, they don't know what the question would be. They just feel they're losing that control, which, uh, you know, again, is obviously very disappointing from our point of view, because all your questions, I remember you'd actually prepared that question, which was an interesting question, which, of course, we never found the answer to was about Arsnes and the fact that he had been playing in the league where Schmidt was for uh, last season and so you know how much of an input he had and how much uh, and actually I think he he did actually talk about him quite extensively it was interesting in an interview in Holland which I read uh, last week and he was basically just saying you know he knew how good he was but he didn't really realise just how good he was he's uh, you know better than, than he thought he'd be so, yeah, you know, just uh, like you say, I think fair enough, Matt, bringing that up. You know, I think you gave a fair uh, description of what happened and just let the viewers, you know, take their own conclusions. Yeah, I, I think... Uh, sorry, the
0: viewers, the listen, listeners, yeah.
1: take their own Yeah, it goes
0: back to what we said before. I think it's all connected. It's connected to, connected to a whole lot of things. Just to um, back up your point, I mean, there's so many journalists in Portugal, more experienced, better writers and Ask better questions than me. I'm, I'm nothing on the on the chain or the ladder of Portuguese journalists. I don't claim to be. I don't want to be. For me, it just came down to just a basic respect type thing and and just trying to understand it. But I think we understand it. And yeah, we just kind of covered it in a, in a respectful way. And there's not much more we can say about it. So um, we'll just leave it at that. And as you say, the listeners can, can make up their own minds about everything that goes on in the media and the way that clubs control the narratives. Just to wrap up news you might have missed, Tom, and this just goes back to f- bad fan behaviour. I mean, if you if you want to read the news consistently, clubs are getting fined almost weekly for um, their supporters. You know, uh, pyrotechnics, uh, <laughs> those fireworks they bring in, which I mentioned earlier in the season, um, outside the stadium stuff. Uh, of course, managers and, and all these... Um, assistant managers and getting sent off and like all these carry fines, but they're not that big. And I don't think, I think the clubs, they budget, (laughs) they have a budget at the beginning of the season and they sort of know these things are going to happen. And uh, maybe, I don't know how much they budget for it, but yeah, one of the ones I picked up was that uh, you remember I went to both of those Minho derbies, the first one um, in Braga and uh, the the one in Gimeraj, which was was just so good. But yeah, I, I saw some Braga supporters Launching plastic seats off the top tier, and narrowly missing security guards standing down on the, on the on the pitch on the side of the pitch. Now a meter here, a meter there, could have killed someone. And um, yeah, uh, it looks like they're going to have to play one of those minior derbies behind closed doors now next season. And I already saw this. I saw Gimadaj supporters at the beginning of the season in that uh, Conference League game against Hajduk Split. They they kicked the plastic chairs off their you know, where they're connected to the stadium and threw them onto the pitch. I mean, there was some stuff going on with the Huddersfield split supporters, went on a rampage in the city of Gimenaša the night before, um, but it still doesn't excuse throwing plastic chairs at opposition players. That was just the last piece of uh, news you might have missed I would have brought up. So we're done with that, and it's time to take a, a break, Tom, and it's gonna be my final rant of the season.
2: My brain, my heart,
0: stinging. All right, Tom. It's time for the rant. Um, uh, I think people like these rants, and uh, I quite like them too. Of course, the last one was all about those bullshit kickoff times and how the Liga just has no respect for match day going supporters, home or away. Just a complete disgrace. And this one is an interesting one. When I first arrived in Portugal, Tom, 2005, gambling was basically nowhere to be seen. I mean, there was a couple of casinos in the country. There was no online betting things. Of course, the internet was still pretty young at that stage. But there were no gambling shops. I remember some English guys uh, who would set up shop in, in Villa Morta and Quaritada, and they would just act as bookies, basically. They would take bets from British people on holiday on horse racing and football and stuff. Um, but basically, gambling was just nowhere to be seen in Portugal. Obviously, you've got the lottery, which is huge in, in Europe and different European countries, but actual gambling on football games, on sports, is basically illegal. Basically, just did not exist. Uh, maybe you can, I guess qualify that. You said you've been living in Portugal for 30 years, so a lot longer than, than me, that's for sure. But that's my understanding of yeah, yeah. it.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, that was quite a big, uh, I suppose, culture shock, if you could say, because of course I was brought up in England, and in England, every town and city, you've got your bookies, you know, quite a few bookies usually in a, you know, any mid-sized town, and it's a, you know, huge big business, of course. The whole industry has changed a lot, hasn't it, because of the internet and everything. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a few years ago, it just didn't exist at all in Portugal. Didn't exist.
0: And now, where to start with this? I mean, the top three clubs, Benfica, Sporting, Porto, to various degrees, have uh, gambling companies uh, on their shirts, either on the front of their shirts or on the on the sleeve. The actual league, the actual league is sponsored by one of them, And so, beginning of the game, half-time, they bring out these huge, uh, I don't know, whatever, advertisement things that they put on the ground either side of halfway. Of course, all of the electronic scoreboards, um, just going ballistic with gambling, advertising, offering people, you know, free bets, and, you know, if you sign up for for our thing, whatever. So, the clubs are completely in bed with it now. The big clubs that have the most exposure. As I say, all the advertising inside the stadium... All the television stuff in the commercials, it's just non stop. I went to a game in Porto where they uh, they had the little signs on every single seat. that they I think it was something to do with 150, I don't remember what it was. It was something. And um, so they're all on the seats and they wanted all the supporters to hold them up so it looked good, you know, a little sort of choreography. And then when I went, I was uh, didn't have my car at that point. That was the beginning of the season. So I'm on the, the tram going back up to Villa de Cond. And uh, there was a kid, I saw a kid next to me, teenager, you know, young kid, and he'd taken one of these things home. So they were also designed for, for, for kids to take them home and I guess put them in their wall or in the window or something. But on the back of it had the name of the, the gambling company that, uh, that sponsors um, Porto. I'm not going to say who they are, but there's, there's two companies. And one of them supports, sponsors the league and one of them sponsors or is a sponsor of, of, of the clubs, well, those three clubs, to various degrees, as I said. So, what a disgrace this is, Tom. What a complete and absolute and utter disgrace this is that Portuguese clubs, this doesn't even end with Portuguese clubs. This goes all the way to the top, Tom. This goes all the way to the top of the Portuguese government, who we know are useless, who, who continually prove themselves to be useless in running a country, an economy, a housing market, you name it, you can go education, the medical sector, transport, strikes all over the place in all of these sectors just a complete debacle and this is just this is just no different the fact that they have allowed this to happen the fact that they have allowed these gambling companies to come in and just completely dominate the clubs dominate the advertising everywhere you look everywhere you see everything to do with portugal and portuguese clubs the big ones that get all the airtime that get all the media coverage gambling companies hand in hand side by side just a complete and utter disgrace and it sickens me we obviously just heard what's going on in the UK and their piss week attempts to sort of regulate this there is just no justification for it zero 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 justification for it to take this money from the gambling companies to see this stuff pushed onto young kids teenagers I was in the Algarve was it last year? One of the last times I was down there with my dad, and he had a couple of people visiting him, and one of them was a woman. It was a mother, single parent. She had a couple of kids. Um, she wasn't that old, and uh, she she got word of what I do, my involvement in football, and then so she she came over to me with her phone, and she she had a, she she had an account with one of these gambling companies, and she had I could see she had zero balance, but she was gambling on football, Tom. She was gambling on football. How? I just can't believe it. I mean, I guess I can because, as I said, the Portuguese government are just completely useless and corrupt, pretty much like almost every other government in every country of the world. This is just the way that the modern world is going. But as I said, uh, from what 20 years ago, when gambling was just anonymous and, and illegal and nowhere to be seen, to now, where it's just in your face, you cannot get away from it. And as I said, this is not a uh, situation specific to uh, to Portugal. Australia is, is a complete joke and a disgrace. UK, even worse. Um, and I'm sure plenty of other countries, I've seen it actually, I used to watch some streams coming from Turkey, that just every single ad in every single break is just gambling, 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 gambling. And as I say, this is up to the government to regulate it, which they don't. And they're just failing the nations, they're just failing their people, because as we know, I mean, Gambling is just like another addiction for many people, like alcohol, like nicotine. Uh, I mean, there are obviously two things that are legal. Drugs is a different sort of story because it's, I guess, illegal in most countries. But um, I'm just, I'm just, I just can't. I mean, I can believe it, but I just, I'm just, I'm just appalled. I'm just completely appalled at how this is just in your face everywhere you go and uh kids and teenagers cannot hide from it tom they can't hide it's impossible over to you
1: <laughs> how could i follow that yeah well yeah you know that's it's like you said that's not uh no particular to portugal it's just uh, you know huge problem isn't it of and and very hypocritical of course of all the uh you know the clubs and uh when they do try and bring in some kind of regulation, uh, you know, it's just so half-hearted, isn't it? And so weak and meek. And uh, I suppose it's just money talks, isn't it, Matt? Too much money. Some of the most profitable companies in the world, without a doubt, you know, online gambling, if you just think about it, you know, just allows anyone to gamble anywhere in the world at any time. So, that's why these companies are among the, you know, most profitable companies in the world. And unfortunately, that's it, money talks.
0: Yeah, and as, as I mentioned in my previous rant about the bullshit that goes on with Liga Portugal, um, there's just, there's zero justification for this. There is absolutely no way that they can justify this. And you know the way they're going to try and justify it. They're going to try and say, oh, well, you know, we've got no money, uh, we need the money. And well, we're using this money for the club and for our youth network. Bullshit. Find another sponsor you may not get quite as much money from another sponsor, but find another sponsor who is a legitimate business, a good business, a business that doesn't destroy people's lives, doesn't destroy people's families, doesn't get people addicted. What? You mean like Sagres or Superbok? Well, as I said, I mean, alcohol, nicotine, gambling. They're all highly addictive. I come from Australia, Tom. I mean, the rugby league competition in Australia used to be called the Winfield Cup. Now, Winfield was a huge cigarette company. Cigarette, you know, one of the huge cigarette companies. But they, Australia actually banned all cigarette advertising many years ago. That's why it was bizarre when I went to live in Germany that cigarette advertising is in your face in Germany. And I got one picture sitting on a tram where I could see three different billboards, or one on the the tram stop, one on the side of a wall, another one somewhere else and um it's incredible coming from australia to see the nicotine advertising you know but um yeah alcohol again they're all basically the same i mean they all can be extremely destructive and of course people can gamble responsibly and and no drama easily some people can can manage it can handle it can not let it get out of control but as with nicotine as with alcohol uh gambling is um is right up there and um you know the fact that these clubs and the league and and the government are allowing it to happen and it's is it, is it even questioned is anyone saying anything about it is there any point saying anything about it no it's like saudi arabian money it's too big too powerful too strong it's almost futile trying to resist it you know what i mean so there's no way really further to go i've said my piece i've done my rant and um let's move on tom All right, Tom, we've been talking for a long time, so let's wrap it up with the Salazar. We've got a couple of games coming up. Of course, Portugal already crushed Liechtenstein, 4-0. And then uh, they went to Luxembourg and won 6-0. We've got a couple of games coming up in, what, 11 days, Tom. I'll see you in Lisboa for that. We've got Portugal hosting Bosnia and Herzegovina at the Estadio da Luz. And then Salazar heading over to Reykjavik, Tom, Iceland. For the, uh, for the game, the next one, just three days later, on the 20th of June, we've seen Roberto Martinez name his squad. We've got Totti, Tot Antonio Gonch, who is a centre-back for Wolverhampton Wanderers. He was born in Guinea-Bissau. So I've got to admit, he's gone completely under my radar, um, but we'll see if he gets any game time. Nuno Mendes, he's out. I guess he's injured, is he? And we've got Diogo Leite, who got called up. Uh, he didn't get called up this time. Renato Sanchez. Huge. He's back in the squad. I guess one of the big stories, Tom, is uh, João Mario. He's come out and said, uh, well, he's going to retire. And he basically, what he took a shot at Martinez did, he? saying, uh, you know, I'm having the greatest season of my career and I play one minute against Liechtenstein. I mean, I haven't really been following any of the news about the Selassie. So what do you think about that? And did I miss
1: anything? Yeah, well, that's been the, the big story, really, The you know, Joel Mario retiring and those comments, which is quite surprising, you know, coming from him because he's always such a kind of measured, you know, not that they were particularly bombastic, his quotes, but, uh, you know, people kind of speculated what was the reason for him retiring. And it was quite surprising for him to come out and just say that, yeah, you know, I'm having the best season of my life. And then when you come on for one minute against Liechtenstein basically he was just saying what's the point he said he's going to dedicate the rest of his career to club football I suppose people have viewed that different ways some people say if I could play one minute for my national team you know I, I wouldn't mind spending my lifetime on the on the on the bench other people are saying he's had a great season there's no doubt about it but look at his competition you got you've got Ruben Neves, you've got Bruno Fernandes, you've got Octavio, you, like you just said, Renato Sanchez came back in, Vitinha, you know, great players there. So it's not a huge surprise that he, you know, he doesn't play more minutes. I'm always a bit disappointed, to be honest, when players like him, you know, it's not just him, uh, Rafa Silva, of course, even just before the World Cup, he decided to call it a day for the selecao I'm always quite surprised when... I'm quite disappointed when players do that because, uh, you know, I think it might be a bit of an old fashioned romantic view, but I still think playing for your country, representing your country, you know, in your profession, uh, you know, football, which is one of the most high profile activities in in the world, you know, the world's favourite sport, it it should just be such an honour that I always find it surprising when players decide to, you know, pack it in. That's really been the main story. As far as the, the team goes, I suppose the only kind of underlying narrative which is probably going to last for the next, uh, at least until the Euros, maybe afterwards is kind of the role which Ronaldo plays, you know, uh, the fact is playing in Saudi Arabia, full season now should, sh- uh, you know, should he be an automatic starter? So it's going to be interesting uh, to see what happens there. It seems to be that Roberto uh, Martinez has kind of set his stall out and basically decided that uh, yet Ronaldo will continue captain in Portugal and continue in uh, with a starting role. We spoke about it earlier, didn't we, Matt? Uh, I mean, I played Liechtenstein and Luxembourg in the first two games. Uh, these two games, slightly more difficult, uh, bosnia and Herzegovina and then uh, and then Iceland, just a question of consolidating their system, which Martinez has changed. Three at the back uh, with wing backs. It would be interesting seeing how that fares against a slightly stronger opposition.
0: Yeah, I don't think Bosnia and Herzegovina and Iceland are you know anywhere near you know strong as they were. Bosnia was strong or as strongest quite a few years ago now when uh, Pjanic, I guess, and Jako was at his top of his game, but. And Iceland, of course, they had that great run at the Euros, but they're not as strong as they were. You'd have to expect Portugal to win these two games quite convincingly. Interested to see how this squad continues to develop. I think, yeah, Martínez told Ronaldo, just get ready to be subbed off, you know, and need to give Ramos, some other guys, some game time. But I guess one of the big differences now is we've got, um, well, Jota. I mean, he's, he's probably a little bit more fit than he was. We really hardly saw him in those first two games. So maybe we'll see a bit more from him. How's Raul Felix going? I don't know. Paul Nina see how he continues to go in the starting side. And Bruno Fernandes, I mean, what what's Martinez going to do with him? You know, I talked in depth about his positioning in that second game and how interesting that was. Still a whole lot to see, to see what Martinez is trying to do. I'm looking forward to these games. Uh, Rafael Leal, another guy, just signed that new contract, and what does he do with him? So, interesting to see how we go formation-wise and player-wise, and we'll just have to... Have to wait and see, but of course, Portugal is where you need to be for all that sort of information and breakdowns and things for these games. And also, Tom, the under-19 squad, they'll be kicking off that campaign for the Euros, that that's going on in Malta. And the under-21 side, they're going to be competing in the under-21 Euros, which is uh, co-hosted between Romania and Georgia, but Portugal will play all their games in Georgia no matter how deep they go into the tournament. Some really interesting players in that squad and still really strong. Despite losing the likes of uh, Inacio and Gonzalo Ramos, you've still got Fabio Vieira. He's in that squad. And Bettina, Fabio Silva, some defenders that haven't featured much in the in the, in the the qualification campaign. So I'm really confident about their chances and I'm looking forward to watching all those youngsters perform. Joel Neves, another guy who was captain of the under-19 squad in the qualifiers, and he's gone straight to the under-21. So obviously he had a good finish to the season with Benfica. And yeah, still a whole lot to go. Uh, you think the season's finished? No, we just keep going. You know, we've still got those playoff games, we've got the Salasal, and we've got two Portuguese youth teams competing to uh, to try and banish the memory of the under-17s here in Hungary, Tom. I mean, I can handle it a lot better now. I mean, you remember my, the video I did in Poland where that was my first tournament and they got knocked out in the group stage and it was, it was weird. But yeah, obviously now, after a few more tournaments at different levels, I just wanted to leave listeners with an image of uh, obviously the players when they lose, uh, it's just devastating. And one particular player, Gonzalo Oliveda, who was the centre back, you know, he had a really difficult game against Germany. He was uh, had a had a tough time. But in the third game against France, which they drew 1-1, which they needed to win, he was really vocal, and you could really see it was almost what like watching a different player. You know, he was just really trying to lead from the back there and vocally. But yeah, at the end of the game, he was just he was just gone. Yeah, they got a fair bit of support, obviously, from the coaching staff and, and uh, everyone associated with the team and all the friends and family that were there came over on the sideline. But as I saw in Poland, you know, these young guys, just they can feel like the weight of a nation. If they feel a bit responsible personally for some mistakes in games or something, then it's even worse. I managed to just to sort of get his attention as he was about to go through the tunnel and just said, I just said, Fortis, I tried to give him a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of a something there to so to help him get through that that, that time but uh, it's just brutal. It's just brutal. I went back to, to finish my report and I'm the only one. <laughs> I'm the only one sitting in the stand. Portugal don't send any journalists to these tournaments, Tom. Only Joanna who you might have seen on Canal Ons, who does the you know, the interviews and that. The press officer came over Yeah, we had a nice little conversation at the end of it. Again, I just wanted to encourage anyone who has the opportunity and the means you know, if any of these tournaments turn up and you can you can get there, I really recommend it. It's just such a great atmosphere, such a family feel. It's all about just support, back to basics, true and proper support, and it's just a great atmosphere. That's about it, mate. So, uh, what do you got going on in the summer? Nice little time for some some family time and some sunshine down in uh, down in, in the Algarve.
1: Yep, yeah, nice little break, especially you know this is a summer about any major tournament, men's tournament. So, yeah, just be taking it easy and uh, charging up the batteries so we can go again, uh, you know, come the end of July, start of August, ready to go again. One thing I'm looking forward to is the, the Women's World Cup. Of course, Portugal have qualified for the first time. And uh, so that's going to be quite interesting seeing how they get on there. But yeah, just looking forward to uh, yeah, taking in some rays for the next few months.
0: I'm going to go to that tournament in Georgia, hopefully, if everything works out well with flights. and I actually contacted them the other day and they said that my application is still getting on, not just me, but they're doing, um, UEFA have approved the journalists, but Georgia haven't given the okay yet. They're still doing background checks and, uh, and things like that. That's an interesting aspect of it that I didn't expect. So Yeah. Hopefully they don't listen to any of my rants, Tom. <laughs> not planning to bring down
1: the
2: government or anything like
0: that. Uh, no, I haven't gone down that way. But uh, no, nah, it should be fine, mate, And uh, yeah, get to Georgia. And then I'm going to get back to Portugal. And I'm just going to drive straight down to the Algarve, basically. Spend six weeks or so down there and just uh, yeah, get back to some of that beach action. And just, as I said, yeah, I'm not sure how much I'm going to do next season. I'll still just probably go to the big games. But there's no way I'm going to go to as many games as I did. I mean, I've been to 100 games, Tom, this year. Since January, what is it? We're not just gone to June. Obviously. How
1: many games did you watch in the Portuguese season? How many uh, games in the different tiers of the Portuguese league?
0: Uh I don't know. I'm just looking at this this footballogy app, and it tells me for the 2022-20 that's that started with Guimarães. That started with Vitória against Pushkash Academia. I actually went there. I went there to uh, those the semi-finals were played there, and uh, but anyway, that's another story. But yeah, since then that was in. 21st of July I've been to 189 games Tom um, that but that includes under 21s and and uh, yeah some of the international stuff and that includes obviously Qatar which was I don't know almost 30 games I think in Qatar so I don't know I would say just in the Portuguese league in the second third fourth division I don't know 140 maybe something like that 100 yeah I don't know yeah. there's other things I want to do I mean I wanted to do some portuguese history stuff and and music and that i got heaps of things to do Um, so yeah you're not going to see as much from me for sure um but yeah i'll still be hanging around and doing different things and um but yeah i just wanted to give people a heads up on what i'm doing i'm still on my mission tom i mean i've done 65 stadiums now in the portugal and uh you can be sure i'm targeting 100 it's just a matter of uh, now knocking off some of those fourth division clubs and um yeah, trying to complete as many of those as I can. I mean, that's, just, that's what makes it fun for me. You know, I get a bit bored going to Volvista and Gilles Descent and, you know, it gets a bit tedious. So uh, I need to keep it fun for me, you know what I mean, and and, and make it fun. So um, going to new stadiums is a huge part of that. So I um, just wanted to give people a, a complete picture of what's going on in case we don't do any more podcasts and um, say thanks to everyone. And uh, that's it. an Sayonara.
1: Yep, I'll speak to you in a couple of weeks. Yeah,
0: I'll, I'll speak to you in a couple of weeks, Tom. <laughs> And again, I just wanted to say to you on air, thanks for all your support, especially through that drama we had with Benfica. You know, I felt like you you had my back, and that means a lot. And of course, a lot of this stuff I've been doing wouldn't have been possible without you. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy to have you as a friend in my life. And um, yeah, we'll leave it with that. So thank you, everyone. Take it easy. Be good to each other. And Forza!